Last week, uh, uh, Martin Segal, I think, spoke outstandingly on uh, the spirit of adoption. We've been looking at the different benefits of being a people who are, who are, being, uh, who are drenched. And he, he looked at what it is to be drenched in the spirit of adoption. And uh, I was planning on speaking something totally different today. But to be honest with you, I sat there and I thought, this is such a profound truth. This is so central that we just have to go deeper. And so this week I felt constrained by the Spirit to actually, as it were, to, to go back onto this topic and to say, Lord, Lord, take us deeper into understanding this. I think one of the reasons is, is because we live in a nation which I believe more than ever is increasingly fatherless. We live in a nation where many have a father of types, but to be honest with you, they may not really be present. Uh, my wife for many years worked in a, a women's refuge and it was breathtaking to hear uh, the awful father fathering that was, wasn't just isolated to a few individuals, but was kind of epidemic. And uh, I had a, quite a sheltered life. So this was just an eye-opening moment. And even for those fathers who, who were around, uh, many of them themselves had had bad fathers. And, and so actually this whole thing of being fathered by God is a very sensitive thing, but it's a, an incredibly beautiful thing that I think God even today wants to, to melt our hearts with afresh. That whether you even, you might have had the best dad you think in the world. I, I had a great father. But I know that this truth of looking at God as our father is, 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 is just breathtaking. And I don't know if you're like me, but when I hear uh, truths like we heard last week from the book of Galatians about the fact that we are drenched in the spirit and that, that we, are, we, we become those who are adopted, my heart kind of understands it. My heart gets excited, but my mind gets, struggles a little bit. I, I, th- so I think, well, I've never been adopted. You know, I, was, I, I, I don't quite know in my mind fully what this means. So I want to go deeper. Anyone here have that, something of that kind of resonance? You kind of get it in your heart, but your mind goes, but what did this, I've never been adopted, so it sounds amazing, but Lord, help my mind to understand. And today we're going to look at a picture that if you're anything like me, you could easily have missed. We're going to look at one verse here today, primarily one verse, you'll be relieved to hear. But this verse, John 5, 19, just to say, if or when I go to be with glory, just remind Josie if she's still alive, this is the verse I want on my grave, okay? John 5, 19. It is just the most amazing verse. And this is what all the scholars are going to show us that we're going to see in this verse, at first glimpse, just looks like a nice truth. Actually, we're going to unpack this verse because what it shows us is, I think, a breathtaking, a breathtaking picture that will help our minds to understand this profound truth of the spirit of adoption. We're going to unpack this one verse which will help us to give us a picture to help our minds as well as our hearts and our souls of what it is to be a people who are adopted into God's family. So the context here is this. Jesus has just healed on the Sabbath, which we might go big deal. It was a big deal in these days. The religious leaders of the time uh, had got their knickers in a twist uh, and they were very upset about this. And then uh, as Jesus then tries to explain why he did it, he gets himself into even greater trouble, double trouble. Uh, we're going to read from verse 16. So in trying to explain why he's just healed on the Sabbath, and the Jews are like, you can't do that, that constitutes work. He says this, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath, verse 17. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Don't miss what he's just said. He says something huge. He's basically saying, God the Father, Yahweh, 
the God of Israel, he's about something today in the temple. He's working on the Sabbath. And I'm tuned in with that. And therefore, I, in partnership with him, am his agent for bringing healing here. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, always note when Jesus said things twice, he really wants us to understand this. Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. Lord, I want to ask for your very explicit help now. Come upon us, Holy Spirit, and change lives in Jesus' name. Amen. So you may have missed it. I missed it for many years until I actually opened a commentary. And uh, those wonderfully gifted men who, who understand the subtleties of, uh, of the Hebrew and the Greek point out something that's likely here. That, that actually, when Jesus says this verse here, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, that verse, we're going to see that there's kind of three components to it. A red light release, a red light release, an amber light alertness, and a green light gutsiness. A red light release, an amber light alertness, and a green light gutsiness. Now, what on earth am I talking about? I hear you say, this man's potty. Anyway, what Jesus is doing here, he is helping us to understand something profound. And the first of them is this, is that actually we need to, like him, understand that as Christians, if you're a Christian here today, you can do nothing of your own accord. What he wants us to first of all do is, if we're going to understand this whole thing of being adopted, if we have something of the relationship that Jesus now has with the Father, which is what the Bible tells us, John 1 says, now we have been given the rights to be called children of God. If we are therefore in something of the same relationship that Jesus had with the Father, the first, the first huge clue he wants to give us today in terms of understanding this in our little minds is this. You can do nothing of your own accord. Turn to the person next to you in an Italian-style way. Say, nothing. And turn to the person on the other side. You're nothing. You can do nothing. Thank you. Okay. What I'm saying is this. Is that Jesus here, when he says the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing, it's very likely that at the back of his mind, he actually has, as it were, a memory, a picture memory of what it was like when he was a young lad and he learnt what his father's skill was. In the Middle East, uh, if you were a son, you almost always, in terms of what you did with your life, you did what your father did. Now, what did, fa- what did uh, Jesus' father, earthly father, do for a living? He was a carpenter. He worked with wood. And so what did Jesus do? He was a carpenter. And Jesus is saying here, the first step in me understanding of how it was to be, uh, as it were, an apprentice to my father in the physical realm, was that I had to learn that I could do nothing of my own accord. Jesus wasn't just sort of supernaturally good at craftsmanship with the wood. He had to actually learn, as fully human, what it was to be a carpenter. So, he's saying that just as in a physical, biological way, I, Jesus, the man, aged 12 or 13, had to learn this craft in a similar way, spiritually, 
I've had to, as it were, first of all, learn what it is to walk with my father spiritually. So D.A. Carson, in his outstanding commentary on John, says this. It says, the principal, thrust of, uh, the principal thrust of verse 19 is that whatever making himself equal with God might mean, for Jesus it does not mean complete or even partial independence from his father. The truth is, is that the son can do nothing by himself, or better, of his own initiative. That's what it literally means in the Greek. He's saying here that in the context of healing on the Sabbath, doing a quite amazing miracle, guy who was uh, crippled for 38 years, Jesus says, arise and walk, and he does. And in that context of then saying, and the reason I'm doing this is because I and the Father are one, i.e. I'm God. In that context of claiming divinity, he swoops in with this profound paradoxical truth, which is, but the Son can do nothing of his own initiative. In In the Greek, it means nothing out of himself. So this is a profound truth that we have to wrestle with. And what he seems to be doing is that he's saying, look, just as when I got that when I was 12, 13, whatever, however old he was, that day when Joseph, his father, said, hey, JC, the big day has arrived. It's time for you to come into my workshop. For years, you've known that your dad was a carpenter, but you haven't been old enough to learn the craft. Today's the day. You can imagine Jesus' excitement as a 12 or 13-year-old boy. In he goes into the workshop, and he sees hanging on the wall the big saws and the hammers and the other things that he would have had, practical things. And you can imagine Jesus' excitement. And like any normal boy or girl, his first instinct would have been to rush forward and to grab one of them. To think, well, I can have a go. I've, I've seen my dad doing this before. I'm sure I can do this. But just as Jesus had to learn that actually, as just as his father would have said to him, Jesus, put down the hammer. Put down the saw. Put down the screwdriver, Jesus. I love you very much, but as a 12-year-old boy, you don't know what you're doing. Let this sink in. He's saying, I, as a human teenage boy, learning my craft as a carpenter, the first step, the first thing I had to humbly come to terms with was that the son could do nothing of his own accord. It's an amazing truth. It's an amazing picture that seems very likely that Jesus had in the back of his mind. D.A. Carson goes on. He says this. He says, though he is the unique son of God and may truly be called God and take to himself divine titles and even as in the context divine rights, yet he's always submissive to the father. Listen to this. Not only does the son always do what pleases the father, but he can only do what he sees his father doing. In this sense, the relationship between the father and the son is not reciprocal. It is inconceivable that John could say that the father does only what he sees the son doing. No, that would be preposterous. Not only in the cultural understanding of father-son relationships, but also in John's understanding of the relationship between Jesus and his heavenly father. The father initiates. The father sends. The father commands. The father commissions. The father grants. The son responds. The son obeys. The son performs his father's will. The son receives in this uh, receives authority and in this sense the son is the father's agent. That's that's breathtaking. 
That's breathtaking because I think we often, as evangelical Christians, many of us here, we, we are very content to think of Jesus as God, which of course he was. He was saying that in the previous verse. That's why they were trying to kill him. But then he sweeps in with this mind-bending truth, saying, yes, I am. But at the same time, the son can do nothing of his own accord. The son can do nothing out of his own initiative. Just as I, as a teenage boy, first of all, when I wanted to learn to be a carpenter, I had to put the tools down. I had to humbly admit I could do nothing of my own accord. In the same way, the first glimpse, the first truth for us as well as Christians, as those who follow Christ and are now in Christ, is that we are those that can do nothing of our own accord. Jesus wasn't an initiative taker. He wasn't someone who was just like, yeah, I'm just in a lot of Christian leadership circles nowadays, it's all about, hey, are you someone who takes initiative? Are you an entrepreneur? Are you someone who just makes things happen? And you're like, oh, oh, I don't think I am. I'm not very creative. Jesus is saying, hey, listen, I, I could do nothing of my own accord. I could do nothing out of my own initiative. That's what the Greek is saying. It's breathtaking. It's breathtaking. For us, we've got to put it this way. It's about having humility. It's about having humility. As three weeks ago, we looked at the fear of God. And I mentioned the fact that as created beings, humans, yes, we're made in the image of God, but we are created beings. We don't know how many days we have. We are just, we're sitting here and our kidneys are working and our livers are working and our eyes are working and our ears are hopefully working. It's all a miracle. We're not controlling it. There's nothing in it that we can claim credit to. It's breathtaking. Isaiah 40 says that the, that the Lord sustains the universe, that he flung out the stars, he knows them by name. Psalms tell us that the earth is his. 2 Corinthians 6 tells us that even our bodies are not our own anymore, that they were bought at a price. Everything is sustained by him. The son can do nothing of his own accord. Everything in this life is a gift everything and we have to understand the fragility of this life francis chan in his outstanding book i would hugely recommend crazy love bad title but a brilliant book crazy love he says this i was reminded of life's fragility by the birth of my fourth child and only son all of a sudden our little girls wanted to carry their new baby brother around my wife and i constantly told them to be careful because he's fragile it got me wondering when he would no longer be fragile. When he's two? When he's eight? When he's in junior high? College? When he's married? Once he has kids? Isn't life always fragile? It's never under our control. He goes on to tell the extraordinary story, he said, of a man called Stan Galach who was a successful businessman, who was well-known in the community. Stan was giving a eulogy at a memorial service when he decided to share the gospel. At the end of his message, Stan told the mourners, you never know when God is going to take your life. At that moment, there's nothing you can do about it. Are you ready? Are you ready? Then Stan sat down, fell over and died. His wife and sons tried to resuscitate him, but there was nothing they could do. Just as Stan had said a few minutes earlier, goes on to talk about then his family rejoicing the fact that Stan went out proclaiming the truth that was central to his life. Just this week, uh, uh, someone that I know to some degree, a student worker who I sat about three down from, 
uh, at the Mobilize conference when we had lunch together. He was in a car crash. I had no idea that we mentioned last week. And, uh, and he's on life support. I think he's a 21-year-old guy, 22. And it's tragic. And yet, at the same time, if this is his time to go to be with the Lord, he, he hasn't wasted a moment. He was absolutely Rory Allen, giving himself 100% to the purposes of God, aware that this life is fragile. Now, I'm not saying this to depress us, because we can go, oh gosh, Tom, this is a bit depressing. It's, you know, we're almost into August. It's meant to be a happy time. This is actually a profoundly important truth that as Christians we allow not to cripple us, but allow to actually fill us and change us. We have to understand that eternity is, is much closer than we realize. And the reason that we need to allow this to sink into our hearts is because it humbles us. It reminds us that we are not in control. And so what I'm trying to allow us to understand and feel today is this, is that when we understand this first component of what it is, the spirit of adoption, there's a red light release that comes from feeling like we've got to control this life. Anyone here brave enough to admit that just sometimes, sometimes, they can stray just a little teeny weeny bit into control freakism? It's true, isn't it? And we even give it a kind of fun, a fun name, control freak. <laughs> But actually, uh, it, it, it's, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. And it's actually a huge thing in our nation and in our world that, that when, as a Christian, we find ourselves really giving ourselves to the idol of control. What do I mean by that? I just mean this, is that is an idol is anything that tells us if we, if we give ourselves to it, it will make us joyful. It will give us the deep satisfaction that we're living for. And anything can be an idol. It can be a person, it can be an idea, it could be a philosophy, could be, in this case, a, 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 a concept of the whole thing of if we can just control our lives. And you think, well, Tom, how do I know if this is an issue in my life? Well, is worry something not just occasionally that slips in, but is it a huge part? Is it almost like you're worried when you're not worried? You know, there's this ongoing thing. I'm, I'm kind of always worried in my life. That can be a sign, actually, to be honest with you, we haven't allowed as Christians the first component of a spirit of adoption to flood our souls. Because it's more akin, if that is a part of our life, if, if we are really those that are constantly worried about what other people think about us, thinking if I can just control how people perceive me, then I will find the, the promised land of deep satisfaction. Or perhaps you're like me, you know, you're passionate about something. I'm passionate about this church. And I found myself a few weeks ago deeply convicted that actually I'd strayed from a healthy sort of, let's just make sure everything's going well, to a, to a control freakism. And was like, and I was living under this kind of illusion that if I can just get every single tiny little itsy-witsy bit of church just perfect, then the glory will fall. Then revival will occur. And I thought God said to me, Tom, it's good to be zealous, but if you're actually believing that your attempt to control everything will bring the joy that you think, you're, you're very mistaken. Because I can bring in multitudes, I can see a city changed in an instant with the worst website and the most rubbish welcome systems in place or with the worst PA in the world or whatever it might be that we leaders can get all silly about. God said, Tom, it's, it's not about that. It's about knowing the release that comes from, Lord, I can do nothing of my own accord. It releases us. It means we don't have to. I was in the healing on the streets yesterday where we, we sit these chairs up in the middle of the town and we pray for people to be healed. It's terrifying at one level. You're there. Hi, oh person who doesn't even believe in God. 
We believe that God can heal your arthritis. I mean, it's scary stuff at one level. But then you read this and you think, but actually, if Jesus said the son could do nothing of his own accord, hallelujah, Tom Shaw is totally qualified in the same way. And so are you. It's actually the most wonderful release that God today, even for some of you, some of you, God is breaking a long-standing inner thing, like a tightness that you've just thought, well, that's just who I am. No, if you're a Christian, you do not have to, you do not have to be like that. It's amazing. God can break in an instant and show us, actually, if I'm adopted by the Father and he is real, and Jesus said, well, actually, I can do nothing of my own sword, so too can you and I enter, enter, enter into more and more the most releasing truth. I had a friend um, who wasn't an orphan, but his mum had left their family when he was young. And his dad was, um, was a, a chronic alcoholic and was a nice guy, but was just very passive. He, didn't really, he wasn't ever around. And what it produced in my friend was, was a drivenness. And he had to, he, his feeling was, I've got to make this life happen. I've got to make, I, he effectively felt like an orphan. I've got to make this life happen. And actually, when we find ourselves living in that place, if you're a Christian here today, God wants to say, hey, listen, I am your father. You're not, you don't have to be like that. You see, sometimes we can think, because in the human realm, you know, for a time as children, we're dependent on our parents. And then maybe when we're 18, we leave and say goodbye. And then we become independent. And we no longer, in theory, rely on our mum and dad for anything. And we can think, well, you know, I'm a Christian, you know, and I've been a Christian for a while and everything. So it's a bit like me, isn't it? No. No, no. As Christians, you always stay dependent. We always stay children. Jesus repeatedly said to enter the kingdom, to advance in the kingdom, to develop in the kingdom of God, you have to stay as a child of God. If Jesus said the son can do nothing of his own accord, then we have to allow this truth today to break a striving in us that thinks I've got to make things happen. God wants to do that today for some of you who have found yourself in a place of striving and even as I'm saying this, that your heart's going, you know that this is for you. And in a few moments, we're going to respond. And I want to encourage you just to come and to receive prayer. Because when we accompany faith with action, it's amazing what God can do. But secondly, we see here a second aspect of this spirit of adoption is not just a red light release from, from enjoying the truth that the, that the son can do nothing of his own accord. We also see in the second part of the verse this amazing truth, but only what he sees the father doing. So what we see here is that this isn't a kind of passive thing. The picture we see here is that Jesus, as it were, he's saying, for me to learn to be a good carpenter required attentiveness. It required me, as it were, standing next to Joseph. And when he said, okay, Jesus, you want to learn how to be a carpenter, make sure, first of all, you get a good, steady stance. Make sure that you get your tools nice and sharp. Now, put your wood in the big metal thing called a vice and make sure it's really tight. And Jesus, make sure that you always go with the grain. Okay, don't go against the grain, go with the grain. I'll stop there. That's about the limits of my practical knowledge. And you can imagine, Jesus, I only do what I see the Father doing. These, this is how you develop as a carpenter. I can try and be all creative, but it just won't work. I'm only, so you can imagine him there with his little you know, slate, bit of slate and chalk, writing it down. And he would have had laser-like focus on what the Father 
was doing. His father, Joseph, was a carpenter. So if he wanted to be a carpenter, he had to see what the father was doing. It's not rocket science. First step, the son can do nothing of his own accord. But secondly, I only do what I see the father doing. What he's really saying here is that there's something of a skill, a skill to be learnt as a Christian. Now we are saved 1,000% by grace. Hallelujah. Which means, that, which means that God breaks in. He gives us faith. We couldn't believe in God. He makes us alive. And it's breathtaking. But we can, be, we can stay in a place as Christians where we are not actually gearing our whole lives around seeing what the Father's doing. We really can. We, particularly in the age we live in, which is just Facebook tweeting, rush, rush, rush world. But I believe if Jesus had a fridge and he had a magnet, I think it would have said, only do what I see the Father doing. I just, I don't know, it's just a hunch I've got, but I think that would have been his fridge magnet. I only do what I see the Father doing. Because you see, if he really believed truth number one, I can't do anything. I can't do anything. Think about that. If I really can't do it, then actually my whole life needs to be around, therefore, what is the Father doing? What, in, the, in the physical realm, I had, to, I had to really work hard to see what my father Joseph, how, how you become a carpenter. And in the spiritual realm, I have to, as it were, look at my fa- what's my father about in this world? What's he doing? And there's an implication here that it's not just something that just happens. But it's something that requires a certain level of focus, energy, time and dedication. I, at age six, realised I wanted to play the violin. And for several years, Mrs. McGarry taught me, doo-doo-doo. and then one day, I think it was about nine, she said, Tom, you are ready to learn vibrato. Now, vibrato, uh, for those of you who aren't musical, uh, is basically where you wiggle your hand, and the note no longer just goes, ah, it goes, ah, and it kind of sings. It's the most wonderful thing. And she would, and she would say, okay, but I had a go instinctively. It was like, it sounded horrendous. She's like, Tom, Tom. Watch me. First of all, good stance. Shoulders back. Secondly, make sure your hand is right the way round. A lot of, it's natural to be more like that, bad position. Hand right round. Need the centre of your thumb right in the middle of the neck of the violin. And then, just practice. Practice. So I would, age nine, would just be walking around. Hi, mum, what's for tea? Fish fingers, nice, cool. Just practice. Practice getting the muscle tone. It took years. It took years. Do you know what? It required me having lessons. It required me not, therefore, watching TV all the time or doing other things. It required me focusing as a young boy on what the heck vibrato is. It required an attentiveness. Jesus, learning to be a carpenter, it required an attentiveness. What is the Father doing? And in the spirit realm, as Christians... He's saying the second part of being adopted into his family is that we're called. The spirit in us enables us to have an extraordinary supernatural attentiveness. Attentiveness in your life. What is the father doing? What's the father doing? All the time in our lives, God is wanting us to be asking that question. Verse 20 builds confidence in us. Look at this. Verse 20. For the father loves the son. He shows him all that he himself is doing. So when I say to you, do you know what the father's doing? Most of us go, not a clue, Tom. That scares me even the question. And many of us can think, well, I don't know. That's a bit of a mystical kind of concept. What's the father doing? But we need to be confident that just as the father loves the son, loves Jesus, and shows him all that he's doing, 
So too, if you're a Christian here today, is that the same truth is over your life. You don't have to get nervous or uptight. Allow the truth that the Father loves you and he wants to show you what he is about. There's a couple of dimensions to this. Internal, external. What's he doing internally? I think there's at least two components to this. What's he building faith for? What's he, what sin is he showing in your heart? Matt Chandler, an amazing preacher from America, uses this phrase. He says, I want to be heart aware. I'm always asking myself the question, what things in my life are building a passion for Christ? What things can I see that by my doing them are building a faith for Christ? What things are subtly draining? What things are actually just nibbling away at my faith in Christ? What's he building faith for? What sins are in our heart? I think when I think about some of the main things that we've been preaching on as a church in the last 12 months, centrality of the gospel, idols, fear of God. Do you know where these have come from? God showing them in my heart. As one of your pastors, I'm not being creative. I'm responding to what God is doing in my heart and saying, well, I just got to hope and trust. I think this is probably what he wants in the whole flock. Lord, what are you doing? Do you know what the Father is building faith for in your life? It's not just sort of spiritual things. It's the whole of our life. I remember years ago um, thinking, Lord, you know, how do I I make sure I, I get the right lady to be my wife? And I remember a good friend of mine, Gustav Strandvik, most of you will know, we're out for a beer. He said, Tom, I won't do his accent. He said, Tom, he said, Tom, who do you have faith for? Interesting question. I never thought of faith in terms of relationships. But as soon as he said it, I thought, well, there's only one woman who is both breathtakingly beautiful. But also, I could imagine when I'm 70 to 80 years old and not looking quite as nice now, sitting with on Brighton Beach with a big bag of chips and granny boots and still fancying (laughs) Josie Shaw or Josie Cross, as she was. And it was a faith thing. It was actually a faith thing. Do you understand? It wasn't just that she's pretty. Yes, she was, and she still is. But it was also a faith. No, no, I know I can imagine my life with her. If only she will consider me. So there's a faith. What is God building faith for in your heart? And also, what is he, what sin is he showing you? John 1 says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Now I don't want to get all that ooh, introspective. But Jonathan Edwards, a great 18th century Puritan, uh, a theologian, said, he said, one of the five clearest ways, one of the, out of the five ways that you know you're Christian is an increasing hatred for sin. Do you see things in your life that, and they're not normally like, you know, I punch someone in the head, that's sin. We're talking attitudes, we're talking things in your heart that no one else sees, the envy or the, or the, uh, the lusts of your heart or the anger. Or whatever it might be, the things in your heart. If, if you're thinking, I can't think of anything, Tom, then ask the Holy Spirit to lovingly convict you. John 16, when Jesus says the Spirit's going to come, we go, woohoo! And he says, and do you know what he's going to do? Woohoo! He's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Oh, sounds a bit painful. Yeah, it is, but it's a beautiful pain. When, you see, in Hebrews it says, don't despise my discipline. I discipline my sons, yeah? It's because I love you. It's because you're adopted now. It's because I care about you. That I show you those things that no one else is going to see. But I do have to show you them. But this requires a certain attentiveness. It does actually require saying, Lord, Lord, as David said, search me, O Lord. 
I don't want to go searching myself. Lord, you search me. Search me and show if there's any offensive way. But as Christians, if we're going to be a, a mature church, it's us saying that, having the courage to say, Lord, what are the things? Show me them, Lord. Not so I then get all introspective, but then I can repent of them and I can move through. Because God gives us the power to change. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. Romans 8. Verse 9, it says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. So what he's saying is this. You can change. When you see the things in your life, we can change. The Spirit enables us to change. So when you see that thing in your life, you think, oh, that attitude I have, I'm never going to be free from it. Yes, you can be. Anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh. You don't owe that sin or your flesh anything to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you're a Christian here today, it means that you are now in the Spirit. It means now that as you are drenched in the Spirit again and again, there is a supernatural power that when you see those things in your life, in your heart, you can put them to death. You can put them to death and say, I'm going I'm to grow, I'm going to change. So what is, what, Father, what are you doing? What things are you showing in my heart? Negatively, but what things positively are you building in my heart? Internally, internal realm. But secondly, Lord, what in the external realm are you doing? Hugh Pierce once said to me a very helpful phrase. He said, I think one of the most helpful things in your life to know the answer to this is following the fruit. What he's saying is, if you want to know what the Father's about in your life, where is the fruit? What are the things that you do that you find a fruit that bears. So, for example, I remember uh, several years ago now, probably eight years ago or something, having my first attempt at preaching. And it was just like my ultimate nightmare. I hate talking to people in front of people. I'm actually quite shy, believe it or not. I really am. And so this was just like, you know, I almost fainted before I got up with fear and sort of staggered my way through this sermon. But then at the end of it, there was a queue of people saying, this spoke to me, and this spoke to me. And, th- and I was like, really? Oh, oh, of course, yes. Excellent, great. And there was this fruit. And so I, I pushed through my fear and gradually have become the place where I actually love it now. I know that um, Tom Upfield, many of you will know, who's uh, someone also with a teaching gift, but it's not in this realm so much, but he actually is someone who in, in, in primary school teaching, he's followed the fruit. And then just a few weeks ago, he won Teacher of the Year Award, Primary School Teacher of the Year Award for this area. It's breathtaking. Well, it may be a gift of leadership. You may be someone that, you know, even when you're, when you're in a group, even if it's just not even an important thing, but a decision like, I don't know, should we have Chinese or, or, or Indian or whatever? You know, people look to you. I remember realizing this over time that actually although I to be honest with you didn't see myself as a leader God was supernaturally enabling me to make decisions that were generally okay they weren't too disastrous it was fantastic again many of you will know Mark Nottage Mark's someone who in a different realm 
out there in the kingdom is a policeman, has just seen the favour of God and has raised him up into a leader so that he's been zooming through the ranks uh, as a policeman. And it's a supernatural thing of God. He's following the fruit. This is something clearly that God's enabling me to do. And I could, I could go on with examples all across this room. What are the things in your life that, where there's fruit? Could be, it could be something like that you notice whenever you're in a group and you come into the group and then when you leave the group, the group's always just a little bit happier. Maybe you have a gift of encouragement. The list goes on and on and on. What are you doing, Father? What, what are the things that you're on that actually are you're bringing fruit to? And I just want to say this, this, this truth about I only do what I see the Father doing is not a kind of excuse for passivity. Because we could think, well, I'm, I'm, you know, with anything in life, I'm just not going to do anything until I know it's the Father's will. And we can overplay this truth to the exclusion of others. I think what this truth does is actually releases us, releases us actually in many realms to get stuck in and to try different things. To try different things. Jesus, his seeing only what the Father doing would have evolved at times going, oh, okay, can I have a little go? All right, oh, no, oh, no, that's not quite right. And it would have involved him combining looking at what his father Joseph was doing, but also at times then getting stuck in himself. And so there's an activity here that God wants to release. There's a sense of excitement and a a sense of release into trying the things. It might be that this thing actually is something that that maybe God wants me to do. But having the humility to admit when the fruit isn't there. Stepping into things and trying them, but also then having the humility. Perhaps it's a relationship. It's a relationship that, well, I think the Father might like this, and then you're in the relationship and you think, actually, do you know, it doesn't quite, mm, the fruit I see in my life, that when I'm, it, just, it doesn't really bring the best out of me, and it doesn't bring the best in her, and let's just lovingly, Keep this amicable. Let's, let's recognize that maybe this isn't the right step. Or it could be a role that you're in. Some role in church or perhaps a role in the workplace. What is the fruit? Because perhaps if the fruit isn't there, maybe the Lord is saying, hey, look, it's okay. I want you to have the courage and the humility to perhaps step back from it and to admit that and not to see it as a failure, but to see it as a way of saying, Lord, Lord, are you, uh, are you perhaps not wanting this? A friend of mine just emailed me this week. Dear friend of mine. And um, he had moved uh, courageously um, out to uh, America. It's from uh, part of, uh, of England. And he, he was going, stepping out to church plant and to lead the church plant. And after several months, it was clear it wasn't working. And, uh, and so he emailed to say, do you know what? This has gone from bad to worse and he's just an amazingly mature guy so he could laugh at himself and go hey I tried he moved his whole family out to America bought a house and everything and said you know what though this isn't right I thought maybe God was wanting me to be a number one leader and actually I've tried that and it just isn't quite working and so I don't think this is the right place I don't think I'm in the right role I'm just going to step back and I just think amen brother well done you've got the courage to put your family first and to say, this isn't quite right. He's got the humility to say, I've tried it, but this isn't what the Father's in. It's not, when he's in it, although there's challenges, you still have that undergirding sense of rightness. The Father's in this. There's fruit that it doesn't just happen. There's fruit here. Just recently, I've started to serve uh, some other churches, Whitstable and Herne Bay. 
And uh, I'm like, oh my goodness, I hardly know what I'm doing here, let alone other churches. But they've invited the sort of leadership input. And the bizarre thing is, there's fruit left, right and centre. There's things that are happening with just a small amount of input, a small amount of uh, you know, suggestions and, and, and shaping. And immediately, there's extraordinary, amazing fruit. But sometimes when we step out, actually, I thought there would be, but there isn't. And I think what we have to realise is it's okay. It's okay. This is a one that I think we do struggle with sometimes because it requires a humility to say, I thought there would be fruit in this, but actually there isn't. And I want to build a culture where it's okay for us to step out. Amen? We've got to build that. We've got to build a culture where we said, you know, I thought, you know, I, Tom, I thought I was very administrative and I realised I'm not. No, not really. We've got, to, we've got to build a culture where we can step into things and actually also know that maybe sometimes... Maybe with the Father's not in it. Because if this is the deal, is that knowing that we're doing something that the Father's involved with is the most precious thing in the world. It's, you see, there's so many things that we can do in this life, aren't there? So many things we could give ourselves time to that can be fun in and of themselves. But knowing you're doing something that the Father's with, with you in is the most beautiful thing in the world. Even in the natural realm, I've noticed this. The amount of times Daisy and Lily are in the conservatory where all the toys are and end up squabbling over, I don't know, the pram or whatever. They both want the pram. And there they are squabbling. And I have learnt something, a secret. I will just silently glide into the other part of the conservatory and start playing enthusiastically with the plastic kitchen. Oh, wow, this is fun. Oh, look at the hobs. They really work. Let's make some scrambled eggs. And suddenly, after a few moments, the girl's like, eh. oh, I want to do that too. And just because I'm doing it, they kind of, just suddenly the pram is like, oh, who cares about the pram? We want the, the plastic kitchen. And I, and I know if I was, you know, a cruel man, I could move around. Oh, look, a pillow. Wow. Let's play with the pillow. And they'd be like, yeah, the pillow. There's just something about being with the father, being with Josie. That it's, it's not just the activity. It's doing it with their parent. And that's God's delight. He never wants us just doing stuff. There's, you know, okay, good stuff. He wants even now, before we meet him on that day, even now to be doing it with him. There's just something in us as humans that is designed by him, not to just do things, but to do them close by him. Close by him. And that requires an alertness. It does require a lifestyle. At times of silence, of solitude, turning the radio off, plenty of time in the word, you know, the basic stuff. So that you're saying, Lord, what are you doing? What are you doing? Constantly asking that question. Just recently, um, there, was this, uh, there was this day with John Piper. Many of you all know John Piper, an amazing man of God from America. And he'd, he'd preached in the morning and we all went to lunch. There was a kind of special session afterwards. And uh, everyone was like high-fiving and it was all kind of bubbly atmosphere. Everyone was going to get the Chinese. There was a big queue up to the buffet. We're like, woohoo! And suddenly I noticed, all on his own, was John Piper. Round the, sort of round the corner, on his own, just sitting there. And I looked carefully at him, and I could have sworn he was just sitting there. And I could have sworn his lips were just, just gently moving. Now, I don't know what he was doing, but I have a feeling he never ate any lunch, so I think he was fasting, but I think he was just enjoying God. I think he was just there being attentive to, Father, what are you doing? Thank you, Father, you've brought me to this country. Thank you, I've been able to bless hundreds of men and women. Thank you, Lord, for that. I honestly believe that's what he was doing. I believe he was just, when you looked at him, I thought, he's just enjoying the presence of God. He's just, he's not doing other things. He's making a decision. I want to be here just on my own. And of course, 
some Wally spotted he was on his own, was like blundered over to him. Hi, John, can I have a chat? And, and John, obviously, being the polite guy, was immediately engaged in conversation. But I think he was just shutting himself down. And it was a picture. Because it doesn't mean that we literally are fasting the whole time and just on our own in some Gnostic state. I'm talking about the fact that there's a decision in our lives. Lord, I want to be attentive all the time. Lord, what are you doing? What, show me internally. Show me externally. Finally, though, what we see, the third ingredient to this spirit of adoption is what I've called a green light gutsiness. We see here, if we go back to John 5, John 5, we see here, the final part of the verse, for whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Say the word that nice and loud. One, two, three. Okay, that the Son does likewise. So we have, first of all, humble Humble acceptance that the son can do nothing of his own accord. I'm released from trying to do everything in life. Worry? No. I'm not going to be trying to control things. But secondly, then, my whole lifestyle is being attentive internally and externally. But then thirdly, what we see here is this kind of go-for-it element. Whatever I see the father doing, that the son does likewise. There's this kind of flavor to this verse of like a, a holy aggression. It's like, yes, Jesus is in trouble with the Pharisees of the day. Why? He just went to the temple, it seems. He wasn't trying to be creative, but his father was working, as it says. His father wanted him to heal someone. And so he was like, oh, okay, father, I'm attentive to what you're saying. I'm sensitized to what you're saying. So in the moment when you're saying it, all else is secondary. Bosh, and in he goes, praying for the guy, causing havoc in the cultural taboos of the day. But he knows whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. And again, he would have learned this in his trade when he was learning. You know, there would have been a time when Jesus had watched enough. Now I know what the father's doing. And he would have been there with his plane, with his hammer. I'm sure his father, Joseph, proud as punch. Go on, Jesus. That's right. Yes. Excellent. Willing him on as he learnt to go for it in terms of being a carpenter. And as Jesus, in this spiritual apprenticeship with his heavenly father, he's saying, whatever I see the father doing, when I know that he's in something, then there's a gutsiness that rises up, a faith, a green light faith that punches through anything, anything that would stand in the way. It's a beautiful thing. It's this third ingredient of a spirit of adoption. It's this courage. And the first two components on their own are not enough. It's not enough just to humbly know that I can do nothing of my own accord. It's not enough to be watching. We have to then couple that with a wonderful, holy as it were, confidence to step out, to take a risk. Years ago, when I moved into Canterbury University as an atheist, I remember this girl kind of helping me move in. I was like, thanks, that's really kind. No idea who she was, why she was doing it. And I was like, so why are you doing this? Well, how come you're helping me? She was like, oh, I just want to be nice. And I was like, okay, thanks. That year went by, me as an atheist, going to hell, didn't know who God was. And then at the end of the year, amazingly, I found out about this church and I found out that this girl was actually a part of the church. And I thought, she had actually, when, when that moment had come, she was in the right place at the right time, and I was just open as they can be. Why are you doing this? All she had to do was say, well, because I believe in a God who loves you, and I'm here to express that to you. But she failed in that moment. She bottled it, and which I identify with. But God doesn't want us to be those that are led into the moment to get the first two parts right and then lack the courage, the gutsiness. He wants us to be a church where I look out on this church and see hundreds of people who are mobilized into a wonderful green light gutsiness, which means that when in your normal day, 
When you're walking the dog or talking to your neighbor or wherever it might be, you set, I'm attentive to the spirit. I'm attentive to what the father's doing. And I know that in this moment, he wants me to go to that next step. He wants us to be a people who grow in a sanctified gutsiness, if I might put it that way. Because then when that happens, we push through the things that would hold us back. I think there's a couple of expressions of this. Fear of man and fear of failure. And when we understand that when God calls us to things, there's an authority that drives us through any obstacles of fear, be it fear of man or fear of failure. It's amazing. The image that came to mind when I thought of this was, and have you guys seen those big juggernaut lorries? Yeah? And on the front of them, they have, some of them have teddy bears. Have you seen that? Bizarrely, teddy bears that are like lassoed to the front of the, I don't know why. We become like those teddy bears. We become those who are unimpressive in and of ourselves. But when God is saying, go and do that, we have the full weight of heaven behind us. We have the full authority of God going, go now. It's what Jesus was experiencing in that moment. The Father's about this. So I know I'm just going to step out and know a supernatural backing of heaven. And it means that whether fear of man or fear of failure is something you ever struggle with, which probably for all of us it is to one degree or another, that we are empowered by God's grace because we're adopted now into his family to do as Jesus did likewise. For, so, for some of us, it's mission. Some of us, we need, to, we need to know that God wants to empower us to step out with the gospel. I got this email this week from a, uh, a 20-year-old girl in the church. I was walking by the river near Sainsbury's and I saw an Asian woman sat on a bench. I felt the Holy Spirit telling me to t- talk to her, but I resisted. She asked me to take a photo for her and I did, but then said bye and walked off. And I could feel the Holy Spirit telling me to go back and pray for her, but I wasn't going to. But then he just pulled me from inside and so I turned around, went back and asked if she'd like me to pray for her. She told me some things and asked if I was okay, seeing as though if it was okay for her to pray for her, seeing as though she wasn't of any religion. I said yes and prayed for a bit and then stopped and asked a question about her situation. We then ended up talking for quite a while and I invited her to church in a few weeks' time. She really wants to come. Then I finished praying for her and God gave me some encouragement for her about her, how he loves her and he knows her. She then just said she could feel this warmth in her heart but didn't know how to explain it. And I told, her to under, to, I told her I understood and that this was his love touching her. Then I asked if she wanted to give her heart to Christ. And she said yes. So I explained the gospel to her. And I think by a miracle of the Lord, she said yes. She understood everything. And, I said that she, and she said she wanted forgiveness and to follow Christ. So there outside Sainsbury's, she prayed to God. And I helped her along when she got stuck. And then I explained about the Holy Spirit. And then we prayed that he would come and fill her and drench her. And she said that she could feel him inside. And that she had never felt like anything like this before. Just this week, this happened outside Sainsbury's. Normal girl. Applying what she's, this truth, I can do nothing of my own accord, but I am attentive. And when the moment comes, I'm not going to let fear of man, I'm not going to let fear of failure step in the way. So for some of you, it's the fact that you're going to get married and you're thinking, can I do this? What if I fail? Hey, listen, if God's calling you to do this, he's going to empower you every step of the way. For some of you, you're going to become parents soon. And there's a little bit of fear in there. And you know what? God, the Holy Spirit, he's going to help you every step of the way. And he doesn't want the fear to hold you back. For some of you, the decisions you're making in terms of perhaps your spouse or your job or your, lo- your location, your parents don't really get. And if, if you're honest, there's a certain level of fear of man in you thinking of, I want their approval, but they don't understand it. 
Hey, listen, if God's calling you to do it, he's going to empower you through it because you're now adopted into his family and he will help you through even when those big things, those big obstacles that wage war with our hearts try and stop us from doing those things. For some of you, God's calling you to leadership in the church, cell leadership or other types of leadership. And you're thinking, can I do this? Those guys in my cell group, they're like 10, 20, 30 years older than me. They, you know, they're, their Bible's three times better than me. Hey, listen, if God's calling you to do it, he will enable you to push through that fear and enable you because he is now your father to actually do that which you couldn't do. God today wants to break fear of every different type. To be a son or a daughter of God means that him as our father, it means that at times, there will be times where we're called to suffer. That passage in Romans 8 goes on to say, he says, he's given us a spirit of adoption so that we don't fall back into a spirit of fear, slavery. That the spirit in us cries, Abba, Father. Should we stand? Should we stand? We're gonna, Jeff's going to come back and lead us in a song of response. But I do want to, we've got five minutes or so. I want us just to, even now, just to allow just the seeds of truth that have been scattered today, just to take root in your hearts. Even now, you might just want to say, Lord, I, I know that in some ways, without realising it, I haven't lived in the full goodness of being adopted into your family. I've been someone who has allowed myself to almost be in some ways a bit more like an orphan. I've allowed myself just to be worried and driven about life. Rather than realising you as my father are the, are the great leader. You're the one that shepherds me. Right now, if that's you, you just, just do business with your father. If you know for you something that worry is not just something that is, you know, a sometimes visitor to your house, but it's, it's just a resident thing there. And you find yourself trying to control the future by worrying. Even now, just, just confess it to your father. You say, Father, I don't want to dishonor you by this heart attitude. I want to say, Lord, sometimes there are times where there's a right anxiety about things, but Lord, if this is something that's just all the time, Lord, I give it to you today. If you are my Father, Lord, you alone are in control. Even now, I just want to break. If there's any element of that in our hearts here today, I just want to pray, Lord, pour out your Spirit upon us as a people. Even now, right now, I pray, Holy Spirit, bring a deep sense of being adopted into your family. That the Father who sustains everything, who controls everything, today says, stop trying to steer the car. Take your hands off the wheel. Take your hands off the wheel. And then for some of us here, it's this thing of fear. It's just this thing of fear. And God today is saying, I want to I wanna enable you to do things you could never do. To be courageous and gutsy for things that you never thought you could do. And if that's you now, you know, yeah, there's times where just fear just grips me and prevents me from stepping into the things of God, into leadership positions or into even giving more money because I'm fearful of it. Even though God's asked me to, I even pray today, Lord God, just bring a deep sense of a spirit of freedom. With the Spirit of the Lord is there is freedom. We're going to break bread now as we worship. This is for Christians. And if you're not a Christian, I encourage you not to, to break bread or to, to drink the wine. 
But we would love for many of you, once you've broken bread and drunk the wine, if you would like to respond to some of the truths you've heard today, we've got a ministry team in red t-shirts who will be on my right, your left. Maybe that you're not a Christian here today, but you know that you want to give your life to Christ. Come forward and speak to one of our ministry team that would love to lead you into this relationship with a Heavenly Father who is more wonderful than we could ever imagine. But let's respond. Let's respond here today. And uh, let's just do business with our Father in these last few moments. Let's break bread. Let's worship together. And for many of us, let's receive ministry today so that God can enable us to enjoy the fruit of being adopted into his family.